Welcome to Brain and Advice. We are delighted to be joined by Cheryl Abate. We're going to be talking about the ethics of uh, pet ownership. Cheryl, would you like to start with a thought experiment? In this thought experiment, there are very intelligent and powerful aliens who take over Earth as we know it, and as a consequence, humans are subject to widespread harm. To say that the aliens frequently and pervasively operate a large machinery, and sometimes humans are accidentally humbled to death or cut up by this machinery. And these aliens are all over the place with this machinery operating it for whatever reason. Also in this experiment, some of the aliens, and perhaps it's just the minority of them, dislike humans. And so they'll intentionally kill humans when they see them, or at least try to do so. Perhaps they dislike humans because they see that humans, when they're left to their own devices and act in human normal ways, they often cause a lot of harm to non-human animals in the environment. But on the other hand, most of the aliens actually really love humans, and some of them bring humans into their homes and lock them in there in an attempt to keep them safe from the malicious aliens and the deadly alien machines that virtually all of the aliens operate. Um, and they do this, they keep humans in confinement to essentially to protect them. And they also do it to protect animals and the environment from human activity, which as we know is often ecologically harmful. So most humans in captivity, they're loved by their alien companions, so the alien companions want to try to keep them happy, so they give them some forms of stimulation such as the opportunity to watch the same 15 minutes of a TV episode each day or a couple times a day, and they feed the humans really well. But still, for the most part, humans are really bored when they're kept in confinement and they end up sleeping away most of their days. Um, and one thing to note is that under certain conditions, humans can still live minimally decent lives outside of alien homes, although, right, free roaming, gave free roaming humans in this experiment are going to be subject to serious risks that they wouldn't encounter if they were kept in confinement. And as a result, humans are kept, who are kept in alien homes do have much longer lifespans than free roaming humans who are left to their own devices. Okay, so that's the thought experiment. So here are some questions we might ask about this thought experiment. If you were a human living in this kind of world, would you prefer to be locked inside an alien's home for your entire life? Or would you want to take your chances and live freely and assume all of the risks that come along with that? Uh, second question, are the humans who are locked in alien homes in this thought experiment, are they all things considered harm? A third and related question, the aliens who lock humans in their homes do something wrong? And finally, what is sort of the right or appropriate way for aliens to interact with humans in this type of, type of world? And then finally, do our answers to these questions imply about the ethics of permanently confining intelligent, independent, and self-sufficient companion animals like cats? I just want to skip right through to the last of those questions. I'm curious about whether the answers that we give in this case should apply to cats or not. It seems to me like you're taking for granted that cats are intelligent in the sense that humans are intelligent. And that on the one hand makes sense. They both seem to have a certain type of intelligence, but it certainly seems like there's another type of intelligence lacking in the cat case, perhaps a self-awareness that's present in the human case, perhaps a certain type of self-awareness that makes it more likely to suffer um, if it's kept in cap captivity. 
in the human case and then absent in the cat's case. And the cat might not be aware of the risks, for example, that it poses to other animals and the risks to itself, whereas the human might be made aware and we might therefore think that engaging in some sort of rational discourse with the human would make more sense. You could convince it into staying. So it seems like there's some important disanalogies here. And if there are important disanalogies, maybe the answer in the human case shouldn't apply in the cat case. Okay, great. So if there are going to be differences, I agree that the type of harms that humans would endure in permanent captivity might differ from the types of harms that animals experience as well. So, right, there might be, if humans are sort of self-aware, what would be the additional harms that come along with that when they're kept in captivity? Maybe like the awareness that they aren't free, that they could be doing otherwise. Uh, so that would cause a serious harm, we might say like a felt frustration that maybe cats don't endure. And I think we there, there are cats that seem to be like happily content in confinement. But one thing to note is when we think about the notion of harm, that we want to think about more than just felt frustration. Deprivational harms are a serious type of harm. That, and these are harms that cats are going to endure in confinement, even if they aren't frustrated by confinement. So one example that philosopher Tom Reagan uses to illustrate the notion of deprivational harms involves what he calls a contented imbecile. So he says, imagine there's a human who is addicted to drugs from the moment they were a child and they live in sort of one, a one bedroom, in one bedroom, they are happily content to watch TV all day, eat good food, and then they're right, just high on drugs. They don't feel any felt frustration. They don't, they're not really aware of what they're missing out on. But at the same time, you know, they're not living a good human life, even though in a state of frustration, and this is because they are being prevented from a wide array of opportunities of satisfaction. So I think in the case of uh, permanent captivity, especially when it comes to animals who might not, who, who perhaps aren't self-aware and aren't aware of what they're missing out on, we need to keep in mind the deprivational harms that, that they face as well, and how, and keep in mind that when you're when you're subject of deprivational harms, your well-being isn't as high as it could be. All right, so I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> I'm not sure if I sufficiently answered your question. So I'm going to give you an absolutely outlandish thought experiment. Imagine this. Imagine that governments all around the world decide that it is in humanity's interest to remain captive for months on end, that they shouldn't leave their houses because it's for their self-preservation. And I think that in this completely outlandish case, I can't imagine a situation like this ever occurring, but I think what would happen is that people would have different kinds of responses to it. Some people would say, thank you for keeping me safe. I really appreciate that you're looking out for me. And other people would say, my freedom really matters. And I want the ability to face the world and all the risks that are out there. Now, what's interesting is that as human beings, we can think through these things. You might think that it's a matter of reasonable people differ. They have different kinds of preferences about the kinds of lives they want to lead, whether freedom or security is more important. Might be some matter of individual preference. Maybe there's some objective answer to it. Maybe we could say one life's not worth living, that if you're willing to sacrifice freedom for security, you deserve neither. The cat case is more complicated in the sense that you can imagine the cat that's born into captivity and only lives in captivity never knows what a life of a wild cat would be like. 
And so we could do the hypothetical and say, are we depriving this cat of joys that the other cats get, even if they're going to die younger, get diseases, do not get cuddles from their masters as often. And yeah, it seems like there are going to be some important disanalogies going on. And I wonder how you deal with that problem. So I think also what I'm advocating for in my work on this topic is providing animals in particular, we might say like independent self-sufficient animals like cats with at least the opportunity to access the outdoors. And right, so cats, just like humans, are gonna have different preferences and why they have those preferences, their particular individual preferences is going to in part be determined by their like early experiences in life. So for instance, growing up, my family and I rescued a kitten who had been injured and left or abandoned by his family. And this cat was terrified of the outdoors. Whenever we would open the door, he would go run. He had jumped into his hiding place. He had no interest in going outdoors. And it, I think once or twice we tried to bring him out and he would right claw into you like he was terrified. So I don't think a cat like that, right, you should force them to live in the outdoors, but the opportunity should be available to these independent and self-sufficient animals regardless if they have an active preference for going outdoors. There can be other cases of animals who are, or cats who are raised in confinement since they were kittens, and since they never went in the outdoors, they don't have, they never developed a desire to go outdoors, but there's still, right, going to be opportunities for pleasures that they're missing out on when they live their life completely in captivity. And some of those pleasures are, I think, really important for feeling flourishing. So, in psychology, slow pleasures are often discussed as being very important for human flourishing. And slow pleasures are often described as a, like a difficult challenge being met with uh, equal skill. And that's something that cats really aren't able to do in the indoor. Sure, they get a lot of bodily pleasures, the pleasures of eating, the pleasures of being pet, of being warm and comfortable but they aren't being cognitively challenged in confinement. And I think that is an important way in which they're missing out. They're missing out on these really important pleasures that we can see are important in our life as humans. And it seems that any animal who has this ability to engage in actually stim stimulating or cognitively challenging activity that they're going to derive special enjoyment from this. I wonder whether the analogy to humans is the wrong analogy. I wonder whether the correct analogy is to maybe an intellectually challenged human. So the kind of human who isn't fully aware of their range of choices and you are protecting that human from going out and harming themselves and possibly harming others. And you do so at the cost that perhaps certain pleasures won't be available to them anymore. In that kind of situation, which is the kind of situation that I think a lot of caregivers um, of intellectually challenged people face, or perhaps someone Alzheimer's. So as someone has Alzheimer's, you deprive them from being able to walk the streets and derive the pleasures that they could derive from walking those streets to, to protect them and to protect others potentially if they were to step in front of a car, for example. On your view, if I understand correctly, you should let the Alzheimer's patient out the front door if they want to go. So it would depend on how high the risk would be to this person. So I think, for instance, if we think about someone who lives with cats right next to a pack of coyotes, and say the coyotes are always like patrolling the home, 
And if you were to let the cat out within 10 minutes, the cat would be attacked or killed by the coyote. Then in that case, I think the risk is too high. So it's going to depend on the level of risk. I don't actually think the right analogy is to compare cats to humans with severe mental disabilities, simply because when cats roam outdoors, they are exercising very skilled and controlled outdoors. And I think the risks that, that like the media says cats are subject to when they roam outdoors is inflated. I think in certain areas, the risk perhaps is too high to let cats roam outdoors. But in other places, like where I live out in the mountains, I let my cats outside during the day. And there are few cars that drive in this area. There aren't like any predators really that are out during the day. So the risks I think are low enough to responsibly let cats roam outdoors. And this is in part to that cats are intelligent. They're, they've evolved to, to access the outdoors in a way that, or in a way that doesn't jeopardize their safety to a serious extent. So just two points. So the first one is that the data on that might say indoor cats have a life expectancy that's about three times the duration of outdoor cats, according to some data. I don't know if that data is correct, but that's the claim. It's about 15 years for indoor cats and it's under five years for outdoor cats. That sounds like a significant risk. That sounds similar to the Alzheimer's patient. What is the life expectancy of an indoor Alzheimer's patient versus an outdoor Alzheimer's patient? It might be three. That could be quite similar. So I, I'm not sure you're making true empirical claims, but then I want to point out another problem, which is your principle on the one hand is let the cat decide. But on the other hand, it's don't let the cat decide if the risk is high enough. So in other words, what you're saying is let the cat decide if the right decision is for the cat to go out, but don't let the cat decide if it's the wrong decision. And then it really sounds like you're not letting the cat decide. So in regards to your first comment about the lifespan of cats, so I believe the number that you quoted, the five years, does that refer, I would have to look at the numbers, but does that refer to feral cats or do you think uh, when we talk about like free roaming cats, there are essentially three types. So completely feral cats that have no connection with humans, no interaction with humans, community cats who they don't live in human homes at all, but they're fed by humans. Maybe humans make them like worn structures outside, but they never come in human homes. And then there are what I call house-based free roaming cats. So I would say my cats right now that I have right now, they're house basically roaming cats. They, they live in my house for most of the time, but then they can go out during the day and then they come back at night and then they stay inside for the evening. So for the five I, years I, that you've that for completely feral? My understanding is this is the difference in lifespan between cats that are owned by humans and allowed to roam freely on the one hand, so it would be your third type, versus cats that are kept indoors against their will or in line with their will. So the five years refer to free house-based free roaming cats. That's my oh, understanding. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to look at those statistics. Okay. Okay. It, because my understanding is that with cats that are house-based and then have some outdoor access, that that the numbers that their lifespan is a lot larger or much larger than the lifespan of a completely feral cat. 
Yes, yeah, so, so we'll have, have to. Lifespan of a I'll... completely feral cat. No, I don't have that. That's interesting. It, this is then a, an in principle question. So let's just say for a moment that my numbers were correct. Let's just say for a moment. And so there is a significant risk to the cat roaming such that its lifespan will on average be cut to a third. Would you still say let them out? So what, one thing I've questioned too is whether we have an obligation to give cats the longest lifespan possible. Because if you think about, we don't have this intuition that we should take a coyote inside <laughs> or even a rabbit, like a free roaming rabbit. We don't have the intuition that we should take a free roaming rabbit inside and, in order to give the free roaming rabbit the longest lifespan possible. So I think it's interesting to me or it's interesting to me that we have this intuition about cats and dogs that like our fundamental obligation to them is to give them the longest lifespan possible. But so I think it's going to depend on the indoor environment too, how much stimulation is available to the animals in captivity. So I do worry that many house-based cats do live lives of complete and utter boredom <laughs> where they get maybe like a few minutes of playtime a day and that's essentially it. And then you wonder like whether or not a life like that is actually worth living. So, so I guess I would need to know a little bit more about how enriched the life of the cat is in the indoors to determine whether or not um, it's worth it for them to have a life longer lifespan or longer lifespan in captivity versus a shorter lifespan out to doing cat-like things. But I do think that again that there are really important pleasures that are available to cats only in the outdoors that really can't be compensated for in the indoors. So I think we should at the very least question why why there's this obsession with cat giving cats a really long lifespan at the expense of having a sort of rich and fulfilling cat life that perhaps may be shorter if they're given some outdoor access. So thus far we've been speaking about what's in the best interest of the cat and I think you're right to say the different ways we could calculate that out. Maybe you should think about qualities. It's not about total lifespan. It's about how enjoyable those years are. One of the things that cats love doing is hunting. They love capturing birds and mice and lizards. They love doing this so much that in America, not feral cats, cats owned by human beings kill between 1 billion and 3 billion birds a year. So when we're doing the calc, we say the cats are having the best time. They're killing all those birds. They're back in nature. They're acting like tigers. Just absolutely wonderful. Let those cats have a great time. And then other people are going to say, but hold on a second. Don't the birds matter too? Isn't that a holocaust against these poor little birds that are being murdered at astronomical numbers? I don't think we can really fathom what a billion birds a year death means. It's just such a high number. And it seems like if you care about pleasure and pain, we think that all animal lives matter in some kind of way, maybe you think cats matter more, but you've got to be like a cat supremacist to say the birds don't matter at all. So how do you deal with that end of the equation with these? Jason wants to say the cats are like doddery old people with dementia. Maybe they're more like Jeffrey Dahmer let loose just with their sort of wildest desires going out and just slaying with abandon. So I have a few things to say about this topic. So, so not all cats hunt successfully. So one study shows that only about 30% of house-based cats hunt successfully when they're in the outdoors. Another thing to note is you can't move from the claim that uh, cats kill 
birds to the claim that cats cause all things considered harms, even to birds. So some research, actually there are a few research studies that show that cats primarily prey on animals with weakened immune systems or who, other, who are otherwise sick or injured. So the consensus seems to be that cat predation is compensatory and not additive to natural wildlife mortality. So this essentially means that cats are adding on death <laughs> into the environment or compensating for ones that would have occurred anyway because they are preying on what ecologists call substandard prey. So that's another thing to keep in mind. And researchers have found this by looking at the spleens of birds who have been killed by cats uh, and looking, comparing them to the spleens of birds who have been killed, for instance, by flying into buildings, human buildings. And the spleens of the cats were killed, or excuse me, the spleens of the birds were killed by cats indicate that the birds were in very poor health. So that's something that, that is not drawing attention to, it's for instance, by the media. These are the widespread criticism of cats for preying on birds. Another thing to note, too, is that cats do perform a lot of important services to our ecosystem. So, cats, so we hear a lot about cats preying on birds. And then we don't hear a lot about cats preying on mice and rats, right? Or, excuse me, mice and rats. Um, and rats actually prey on the eggs of birds. So there is a sense in which cats actually indirectly are promoting bird populations as well when they prey on rats. So those are a couple of things I might say in response. And then uh, if you're not convinced, there are still ways we can uh, either uh, reduce cat predation or try to offset it. So we might try to reduce predation by putting collars on cats. So there, a lot of people will put bell collars on cats in order to try to prevent them from preying on birds. But that's actually not the best method of preventing cats from preying on birds. Birds are very visually stimulated. So there are specific collars uh, called bird be safe collars. And there are peer-reviewed studies on the effectiveness on these collars. I can't remember the exact numbers, but they drastically reduce cat predation of birds. So that's something to think about as well. Another thing that I'm interested in is I'm very interested in thinking of like creative ways to coexist with cats as cats uh, without kind of, I guess, falling prey to this dichotomy. Either we keep cats inside and keep wildlife safe, or we let cats outside and then they destroy wildlife. There, there are, we might say, like creative things we can do in order to allow cats to roam outdoors without causing widespread harm to the environment. So one thing we might do if cats do prey on wildlife and they tend to bring their back to their human guardians, we can engage in what I call, or what's called carcass provisioning. So that might be moving the carcasses to where other wild animals will find it and feed on them or feed on the carcasses. So I live out in the mountains. I know where the foxes hang out as I see them on my wildlife camera. So when I let my cats from outdoors, if they do happen to bring a prey back to me, then I will just move the carcass to where I see the foxes hang out. And nine times out of 10, it's gone the next day. So, right, if my cat kills a, for instance, a chipmunk, I leave that out for a fox. Now the fox is going to kill one less chipmunk. There, right, and another thing to keep in mind is humans cause widespread harm to animals in the environment. So we, for instance, run over many animals with our vehicles. Some places have wildlife rehabilitation centers where you can bring injured wildlife to these 
facilities and they'll rehabilitate the animals and then release, tent, release them around where they were found. And oftentimes the, and I volunteered at one of these in Colorado. So I know like the causes of what, why the animals end up there. And it's usually because of human activity. Um, so it would be great if people with cats who, who kill wildlife, if they could work with wildlife rehabil rehabilitators to bring these animals in and use them as feed. These rehabilitation centers have to feed these animals something. It would be great if we, if people who own cats and let them roam outdoors can maybe work with these facilities to, again, offset any potential harm that those pets are causing when they roam outdoors. Um, and finally, I'll say just one last thing on this topic. My thought experiment is that one reason why the aliens want to confine humans is because humans cause widespread harm to the environment and to the animals in it. So think about factory farming, right? <laughs> we kill in the U.S. 10 billion animals alone for food, and then that's not even considering all the animals, the wild animals who are killed as a side effect due to habitat disruption or pollution of water systems and so forth. And we don't think like we should put all humans <laughs> in permanent confinement, despite that we've wreaked havoc, so much havoc on the environment. So I do think that there is a double standard here that's very problematic. And it's very problematic when pervasiveness write books about <laughs> Oh, excuse me. Uh, it's very problematic when conservationists write books about like how we should confine animal cats or use means necessary to remove cats from a landscape when we don't even stop to pause and look at our own behavior and how we are wreaking havoc on the environment, birds included. If you think about like our use of pesticides, how many birds are killed by flying into our buildings, habitat destruction, and so forth. So it is a problem when we use cats as a scapegoat for causing harm to bird populations when we're causing so much devastation, not only to bird populations, but mountain lion populations, rabbit populations, so on and so forth. So I wonder about what our obligations are to our pets generally. People are going to see there's a reciprocal relationship. They're going to say, I look after the dog and the cat and I feed them and I provide them with shelter. And in return, they owe me certain things. And one of the things that they really owe me are to look adorable. And so a lot of people are going to amp this up by dressing their pets in various outfits. We've got a, a friend of the show who had two very cute dogs. And one of the things that you would do on Halloween is put the dogs in ludicrous outfits, dress them up pumpkins, dress them up Christmas characters, like Fry and Leela from Futurama. Isn't there some kind of abuse of the animal's dignity in these cases? There's something, whenever you see a picture of a pug dressed up like a gangster, it's just got these sad droopy eyes and it says, was this worth it? Was it worth being domesticated by humanity? I used to be wild. I used to be a wolf. I used to hunt. And now look at me. I'm here with a fake cigar in my mouth. Is life even worth living? So when we think about the issue of dressing up animals in costumes, and as a side note, I volunteer for a cat rescue and as part of their fundraiser event for, for Halloween, they had a pet costume contest and people would actually bring their cats to these contests and the cats clearly did not want to be there. Uh, so this happens with cats as well. And they, the cats are going to be obviously agitated and frustrated by this as well. But then we might think about animals who it doesn't really bother them. They don't really notice it. And then that's a moral problem. So we think about like 
animal welfare or even human welfare, there are different right, accounts of well-being. The one popular account is the hedonist account, which essentially says like, pleasure and pain is all that matters for well-being. So if the animal isn't bothered by it and the human, the human companion is getting pleasure from it, why not? It's not affecting the animal's well-being. I, I don't think that view about human or animal well-being. My view about well-being for both humans and animals is what I call like dualistic welfareism. So this, so on this view, essentially we should treat animals in accord with the kind of creatures that they are. And when we fail to do this, then we reduce the animal's welfare. When we act in accordance with this principle, we tend to promote the animal's welfare. So if we think about a dog, for instance, a dog is a sort of being who is sentient. So we should care about the dog's happiness, their capacity, the dog's capacity to feel pain as well, right? But then in addition, a dog is so much more than just a sentient creature. A dog, for instance, is a dog, and thus the dog should be treated as a dog. A dog is the kind of creature who has inherent value. That's to say that a dog has value in and of itself, regardless of its usefulness to others. It's not like a mere computer. The dog, a computer is valuable to us only as an instrument. When it stops working, we throw it in the trash. Dogs, right, they're valuable to us even if they are, excuse me, they're inherently valuable even if they're not useful to us. We shouldn't just throw dogs in the dumpster just because they're unwanted like we might do with a computer. So that means that we should treat the dog in accord, in accordance with the dog's inherent value. We should treat the dog as the kind of creature who has inherent value. And this means not treating the dog like a mere instrument. And so when we dress up animals, there's a sense in which we are treating them as tools for our pleasure, right, as instruments, as sort of dolls should dress up. So that, I think, actually does impact the dog's welfare, too, as well. And it, you might say it's a dignitary harm. It impacts or negatively impairs what I call the dog's subject welfare, as opposed to its experiential welfare. And I think if we bring this back to the discussion about cats, but that's just another reason why keeping cats in permanent confinement is problematic. We aren't treating the cat as a cat. We aren't, and there's a sense too in which we're treating the cat as a mere means for, for our comfort, for our, well, we might just say for our comfort. And oftentimes the reason why people don't let their cats ro roam outdoors is about themselves, that <laughs> they would suffer, right? serious loss if something happened to their cat. I know this is when I let my cats run outdoors. I am in a state of stress some of the time as I do. I am aware that there are those additional risks, um, but I do remind myself, if you really respect your cat, if you really love your cat, this is not about you. This is about their welfare, and we should right, keep that in mind when we're trying to make these decisions about what kind of behavior to let them engage in and whether or not we should dress them up in costumes for Halloween. The instance, though, of, that, that I mentioned earlier about the cat shelter that, that had this event that, or the costume event, right? Now, that actually raised money for the shelter. <laughs> That's a sense in which you might be causing this dignitary harm to, to some cats in order to promote the welfare of other cats and maybe promote the welfare of cats in more in very significant ways that perhaps outweighs any kind of dignitary harm that is caused to the cats or, or dogs who are dressed up, right? Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Okay. 
I, I be honest, I think Mark is going to be more sympathetic to your views because he has serious sympathies for deontology when it comes to human. But as the resident utility, I struggle to make sense of these concepts as they apply to humans, but my mind is really doing cartwheels now thinking about them applied to animals. So now I'm just going to throw you straight into the trolley problem, right? So you've got dog on the one track, you've got human on the other track. Which track do you choose? You've got to choose one. Which one do you choose? For you, is it a toss-up between the dog and the human? Is it that you need two dogs for every one human? Ten? I want you to start quantifying. I, these vague notions of inherent value are meaningless to the utilitarian until you put a number to it. I'm not going to give you my view, but I am going to give you a view, the view of Tom Reagan. And a lot of my views are for development of his. I'll say right now I'm undecided on this matter. I think it's also going to, whether or not like that dog is your dog and the human is a stranger, that's going to make a difference. But to answer, let's just say in the scenario that it's a dog that, that's a stranger and it's a human that's a stranger, who ought you to say? Some animal rights philosophers like Tom Reagan say that even though the human and the dog have equal inherent value, inherent value is a categorical notion. Um, and this is my view as well. It doesn't come in degree. Either you have it or you don't. You're not kind of a thing that has value in of itself. You either are or you aren't. This is why we would say that um, the dog or animal rights philosophers like myself believe in the notion of inherent value and that applies to animals as well as humans. We're going to say that like it's a terrible notion. You have it or you don't. A human doesn't have more than a dog, for instance. But it's consistent to say that even though animals and humans have inherent value, the lives of creatures with inherent value can have different degrees of value. So if you have your whole life ahead of you and you're a human, maybe you're an infant or a 10-year-old, it can plausibly be argued that your life has more value than the life of someone who's 90 years old and who's sick and only has a projected three, two or three more years to live. So this is why we might say if you're in a burning building and you can, and there is a 10-year-old in one room and a 90-year-old in another room, perhaps the right thing to do is to save the 10-year-old simply because their life has more value because the life has more opportunities for satisfaction. And this isn't, but this isn't to say that the child itself has more value than the 90-year-old person. So we can apply this idea that the value of your life sort of varies with the opportunities for satisfaction within the life to conflicts involving humans and animals, like the only one that you presented. You might say that, well, the dog and human have equal inherent value, but the human's life, if, it's, if the human is an average human, likely has more opportunities for satisfaction. And we might say that there's an important satisfaction that humans have that are unavailable to dogs, such as the satisfaction humans have when it comes to thinking abstractly about morality, right? Or having discussions like we're having right now, right? There's just something that's off limits to animals. It's a sense of pleasure that is off limits to animals. We also tend to have longer lifespans than dogs, so that might be right another reason why we should opt for rescuing the human over the animal in this example. So two problems. The first is it sounds like it's a very interesting distinction, but it gives the game away. So I say it sounds 
this category of having intrinsic value versus not having intrinsic value, given that everyone has it, it's not playing any work in these calculations. It's not doing the moral work. What's doing the moral work is this second, this, or this other horn of the distinction that you introduced, which is the value of a life. And there you're able to make judgments about which life is more valuable than the other. And I'd say to you, let's dispatch these notions of categorical value and ignore them for the purposes of our moral judgment. And let's just focus on the value of lives. Once we do that, we yield different results, different conclusions from the ones that you want us to yield, right? So for example, do we let the cat in or out? The cat's life has a certain value, but all those millions of birds or billions of birds have value too. Even if it's a lower value, still summatively, they have a lot of value. And so we don't let the cat out. If, as soon as you introduce that, you're, you're opening the, to the opposite conclusion. And I, I had a second objection, which has disappeared. So just going back to my claim about the research that's been done on cat predation and what kind of prey cats tend to prey on. So cats tend to prey on substandard prey, so prey animals who are sick, weak, injured, and would die soon any, anyways. It's unclear to me how much pleasure is actually available to these substandard prey. In fact, there might be no pleasures available to them. They might have no opportunities for satisfaction in their future. Their future might just be filled with opportunities for, for pain and suffering. There's a sense in which it actually might be depending on the prey nature. If the prey is in very bad shape, if the prey, for instance, is severely injured such that they can't even move to find food, then it actually might be better for them to suffer a quick death, a relatively quick death, you might say, at the pause of a cat, than to have a drawn-out death due to starvation or dehydration. And then back to your point about, like, why do we even talk about this notion of inherent value? Why don't we talk about just the value of lives and make comparisons there? When we talk about, like, comparing the value of lives, that's a very important distinction and notion to keep in mind when we're talking about kind of these conflict situations, the trolley case, the burning building situation, right? Who do I save? I can only save one. Everyone has equal inherent value. Now we have this extra sort of like notion, moral notion that we can use to help resolve these conflicts. But the notion of inherent value is important when we think about like maybe non-conflict cases. So why shouldn't I, should I or shouldn't, is, is it, let me start over, is it or is it not morally permissible for me to raise a cow in my backyard and then uh, kill the cow and eat the cow before the cow has reached her natural lifespan. There, we're not like in this conflict situation where it's a cow or another human's life. So the notion of inherent value helps to explain like why we shouldn't kill this cow right for consumption because the cow has inherent value. The cow is valuable in and of herself. It shouldn't be used as a mere means for human consumption. So the notion of inherent value is important for us to use when we're talking about cases of like direct exploitation of animals, but when there isn't, when there isn't a conflict between a human life and an animal life, for instance. So I've got another case. Good friend of mine has a very complicated relationship with his sexuality. It's got this enormous sex drive. He's going out impregnating women all over the show. There's all these orphans because of him. He feels this enormous amount of angst 
where he doesn't have sex. So if he's stuck behind closed doors for more than a week, I can hear him yelling in agony with this inability to have sex. And someone said, why don't you just castrate him? That'll solve the problem. The desire will go away. You know, there won't be any of these orphan kids running around. You won't hear the screaming. And I thought about it and I thought, we do it to cats. So why not do it to my friend? So given that cats have this innate desire to be sexual, that it's part of their being, are we doing something wrong when, when we sterilize cats or dogs or other kinds of beings? Is there some kind of infringement on their inherent dignity? Should we care about all the illegitimate cats that are going to be running around because the free roaming un, <laughs> unsterilized cat is going around creating all these beings who might be better for them never to have been. They'll be feral cats. They'll be preyed on by wild dogs. What's the right thing to do? So if we grant that, some would argue that we have a problem with overpopulation of animals, for instance, in the United States. And that seems clear given how many animals are killed in shelters each year. Many of these animals are perfectly healthy, uh, including cats and dogs. And they're killed because we just don't ha have enough space to have right, huge feral cat and dog colonies. We do like in Las Vegas still, we, there are many feral cats, many feral cats. And oftentimes when shelters receive cats, uh, they'll sterilize them and then release them back to where they were found. But still, they still euthanize some of them because um, they can't re-release all of them because that would just lead to overcrowding feral colonies. And that's bad for the cats, it's bad for humans. That can lead to increased fighting, increased disease. That can be spread to humans as well. So if we grant, right, that the overpopulation of cats and dogs is actually causing, would cause serious harm to cats and dogs, right, who are out, right, living in these feral communities, then we, for, then, um, when we spay and neuter cats, essentially what we're doing is we're causing what I would call a non-basic harm in order to prevent a very basic harm. And I think that can be justified uh, when it comes to humans as well. So I don't think that it's always unjust to cause harm to an animal in order to prevent a serious harm to other animals. I think that it can be justified, but the harm that we're causing has to be very much less serious than the harm that we're trying to prevent. So we castrate Mark's friend. <laughs> I'm gonna not answer that. <laughs> That's the problem, right? It sounds like your view just implies. I mean, in both cases, they have inherent dignity. In both cases, you're causing a non-basic harm to avoid a basic harm, but it would be insane to go and castrate him. Right, but we might say, assuming this friend, right, he's engaging in consensual activity. So sexual liberty is very core to, we might say, humans having a meaningful life. And perhaps it's not as central to animals having a meaning life because they don't maybe recognize the importance of it. So I think that there would be a difference there as well. Sexual liberty seems to be very core to meaning, a meaningful life for humans in a way that isn't core to a meaningful life for animals. So I, I want to get at this notion of what it means to be a cat or to be a dog. We had a previous guest on the Landy Kutsier and she is an environmental philosopher and she takes an interesting view, which is that the distinction between what is natural and unnatural, she thinks has been incorrectly drawn in most discussions. So the case she gives in South Africa, we have a very big national park. 
called the Kruger National Park, where a lot of international tourists arrive and they watch animals in apparently their natural habitat. So cheetahs and lions and elephants roam free in the savannah and they eat each other and they're allowed to do as they would naturally do. A backside to the Kruger Park, which not a lot of people know about, which is a lot of the elephants in the park and a lot of the animals actually feed on the rubbish at the back of the park, which has accumulated as a result of all the tourists throwing their rubbish away in the resort where they come to visit. And she says many environmentalists would say that is unnatural, but she thinks it would be very hard to explain why. And she concludes that it seems just as natural as the savannah on the, of the Kruger National Park that everyone is looking. She pushes that conclusion further. So think about shopping malls. Why think that those are unnatural? It's, it seems like it would be very hard to explain why. Now we return to the case of the cats or the dog that you're putting a cigar in their mouth and dressing them up. And you're saying that that's, you're not letting that cat be a cat. You're not letting that dog be a dog. I want to know what that means. What does it mean for a cat to be a cat or a dog to be a dog? It sounds like you have some idea of a natural car. There is something inherently in a dog or in a cat that is its behavior. And that is context independent. In other words, it doesn't matter whether it's at the rubbish dump site or not. It doesn't matter whether in a mall, it just has this inherent behavior that maybe that's just incorrect. It's maybe philosophically incorrect because it's quite hard to define what that would be and to place it in the cat. It might be contextually incorrect. It seems like animals are developing and evolving because of their context. Dogs are not today what they were hundreds of thousands of years ago. They've evolved to live with humans. They've, their bodies have changed. They've become cuter because that's a survival mechanism. Cats have from larger felines. And it seems like to ignore their context and just say there's some inherent behavior in the cat or behavior in the dog that's natural or part of its dignity, it would be very hard to define what that is of context. Right. So one thing really quickly, cats haven't actually changed much at all from their wild ancestors. The research shows that only about 13 genes distinguish domestic cats from their wild ancestors. So this is again why a lot of my research about letting companion animals sort of act in accord with their species-specific behavior is limited to a discussion of cats because the nature of cats really hasn't changed. But I think you're right with dogs too, especially if you consider specific breeds of dogs. Their nature is very different than that of wolves in, in so many different ways. But I do think this sort of respect for the nature of animals, and what I mean by that is really the exercising of species normal capacities in order to create an species normal behavior. That, that's what I mean by natural behavior, essentially. But one issue with trying to change that is that when we do so, we're instrumentalizing the animals. We're trying to change them to make them like better companions for us, to be for better instruments for comfort, for entertainment for us. But that's at least one reason why I find it problematic when we try to change the nature of animals or try to prevent them from engaging in their species normal behavior. So throughout our conversation, there's been this interesting tension. On the one hand, we think about animals as being part of a population. So when you've 
looked at the equation, you'll say a bunch of birds and mice are being culled by the cats. They're not the ones that are worth anything anyway. They were sick. And there's this positive effect on the population because some of the things are going to predate on the others. And so we get an overall benefit. Those kinds of arguments are often made by people who run hunting operations. So they'll say, if you want to have more wild buffalo, one way to do that is to allow some rich American tourists to come out to Africa and the rifle, shoot the buffalo in the head and charge them a lot of money. And then you can use that for preservation efforts. And it's really good for the population and the individual animal eh, doesn't really matter so much. So a couple of reasons to think there's a tension here. The one is imagine we said, look, there's this Papua New Guinean tribe who's on the verge of extinction. And again, there's these bloodthirsty American tourists who would just love to have a Papua New Guinean head on their mantelpiece. And we could use the money that we get from selling those licenses to build them wonderful things to help the community flourish. We start to think there are side constraints here. You can't just go and kill Papua New Guineans for the greater benefit of their population. The other one is you mentioned when we're thinking about this trolley problem and you've got the dog on the one side and grandpa on the other, you go, whose dog is it? If it's some random dog, then we're in the population territory. If it's my dog and it's Jason's grandpa, then this switch is really easy. I don't know his grandpa, I don't care about him, but it's my dog. It's very important to me. So when you're evaluating the lives of animals, how much of it has to do with it's my pet. And there's some kind of relationship here versus something inherent in the pet itself. A friend of mine recently has gone through something very difficult. Her cat has disappeared and she's spent an enormous amount of money trying to find the cat. And she said she would pass an arm if the cat was brought back to her. Another friend said that he would sacrifice both limbs if his cats or if his dogs that had perished could be brought back to life and he could spend time with them. People feel an enormous amount for their pets. Is it rarely that when we're thinking about these problems, it's not about the inherent nature of the animal. It's about human beings and our relationship to the animal. And that's what's doing the moral work. Or is that the entirely wrong way of thinking about it? Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I do believe that companion animals contribute great meaning to our lives. And that gives us a moral reason to, to prioritize them over other creatures, especially in conflict situations. So even when it comes to the issue of, for instance, adopting an animal, think about how much money we're gonna end up spending on that animal throughout the animal's life. Food, medical care, toys, so on and so forth. We could instead take all that money and donate it to an anti-factory farming organization. Are we justified in adopting an animal when we could be putting this money right into an effort that is aimed at preventing really serious harms to animals? And then the issue gets a little bit deeper and more complex when we think about obligate carnivores like cats, because when we adopt them, we're going to be feeding them the flesh of other animals or we most likely will be doing so. I know there is vegan pet food, but it's not clear to me if it's nutritionally adequate and some cats just won't eat it regardless. So that right adds another layer of complexity where we're actually going to be putting money into a factory farming industry in order to feed our feline companions as well. Is that morally justified? Perhaps it is so on the basis that these animals do give us a very important source of meaning to our lives, meaning in our lives, and it might be a meaning that we can't find elsewhere. So there is a lot of evidence that companion animals play a significant role in the meaning of lives for victims of domestic abuse, the elderly in nursing homes, 
the homeless, we might think about, right, individual humans that have, for whatever reason, harder times building meaningful connections with other humans, animals, and in that case, play a very important sort of irreplaceable role of meaning in lives. So I think in those cases, I, it is actually justified to prioritize these animals. And at the very least, you might say it's excusable, right? There's this distinction between something act being justified and an act being unjustified, but morally excusable in the sense that like, you did something wrong, but we understand why you did it. And this is what some animal rights philosophers say about the issue of feeding animal flesh to cats. Uh, maybe it turns out it's unjustified, is essentially what you're doing is you're at least causally contributing to the harms of factory farm animals. That's wrong, but you have, but if we understand like why you did it, you have to feed your companion animal, right? It would be, we would think like the human who adopts an animal and then decides, oh, I'm not going to, I'm going to feed the animal unhealthy food because if I excuse the animal food from animal flesh, then that will contribute to the animal farming industry. We might think like that there's really something wrong with that person that they would let their animal get sick and not contribute right to this other harm. And so I think it's like within our psychology as humans that when we are in a special relationship, a very intimate and intensively involved special relationship with very close friends, family, animals that we will do almost whatever we can in order to promote their welfare, even if it means not helping others who might suffer greater harms, even if it might be causally contributing to other serious harms. That's just sort of what it means to be a human and enter into these relationships. And we might say at the very least it's understandable that people would prioritize their companion animals, even if it means that they're not going to be helping out with other serious moral injustices to their fullest extent, even if it means they might even be contributing to these serious injustices, such as when we feed our cats off animal flesh. I'm curious where you draw the line for animal dignity. Cats, it seems in your mind, have dignity and have inherent value. I assume dogs do as well. Not so sure what your views on birds. How about insects? Do insects have inherent value? How far down the sentience ladder do we, do we start awarding dignity and inherent value to animals? So I would say the basis of inherent value is sentience or the capacity to suffer or feel pleasure. So whatever animal is sentient, that animal is going to have inherent value. But then there's a question, the triple question of but which animals are sentient. We right know with pretty much certainty that like most humans are sentient, mammals and birds. But then right when it gets comes to insects or certain sea creatures like bivalves, oysters, mussels, clams, it, it, it's less clear, right, if they are sentient. And then there's this empirical question about like, what should be the basis that we use for judging whether or not an animal is sentient. Should we look at, right, the human brain and determine what gives rise to sentience in humans and say if animals have a similar brain, then they have it. If they don't, then they're not sentient. That, right, might be a problematic way of determining whether or not a creature is sentient. So I, I don't know about insects. <laughs> I'm even less bivalves. I think that there's pretty weak evidence that bivalves are sentient, especially ones that are stationary. But there's an error we need to figure out because think about, again, the issue of living with and feeding obligate carnivores like cats. What if we could feed them insects instead of farmed animals? We'd be killing a lot more insects, right? If we think about a pellet 
farm animal flesh versus a pound of insect flesh, how many more insects are going to be killed. But even if insects, it turns out insects are sentient, it's not clear that they would be subject to the kinds of harms that factory farm animals are subject to. So think about some of the serious harms that factory farm animals are subject to, really just like the intensive crowding. They all suffer emotional harm when their babies are taken away from them. Uh, would those harms be present right, in an insect farming industry? Are they really bothered by intensive confinement? We wouldn't be sort of separating baby grasshoppers from adult grasshoppers as we do right, in like, the veal industry. So those are some things that we think about, like even if it turns out that insects are sentient, it might not be the case that it's wrong to use them, for instance, to feed, feed animals, animals who actually need animal protein for, for their health. So I think that this is an important question when it comes to feeding obligate carnivores for humans as well. We don't need, at least when we have alternatives available to us, we don't need to eat any kind of animal flesh. Um, but with obligate carnivores like cats, this is a relevant, uh, timely question. And I believe that there are some cat food companies that either are working on developing insect-based cat food, or they actually might, might even be commercially available. I need, actually need to look into that. Well, I want to say thank you for an absolutely delightful conversation. So uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, and I've really enjoyed chatting about animal ethics in such detail. Okay, great. Thank you guys so much. Awesome. I'm going to stop our recording.